0: Hello and welcome to Original Soundchat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe Devader. And I'm Peter Spasia.
1: We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from, without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first this week for R2 Games is 2019's Persona Q2, New Cinema Labyrinth, the movie-inspired sequel to the first-person dungeon crawler spinoff that wonders what it would be like if the cast of Persona 5 met their P3
0: and P4 counterparts. Following that is a game about how it would be very scary if demons lived in your internet connection and also how cool it would be if your PC was a gun. 1997's Devil Summoner, soul hackers
1: yes these are both shin megami tensei spin-offs in a way uh one of them by like a factor of two (laughs) yeah but it's uh interesting because this is the week where the shin megami tensei 3 nocturne hd remaster
0: is now out on at least switch is it on ps4 and pc as well i think I think so. I believe all the versions are launching simultaneously.
1: But your Smash of Pieces co-host Matt uh, reviewed the game over at Nintendo World Report, so go check that out if you're curious. Do we know necessarily why
0: we're not touching uh, Nocturne this week on the show? I have never played it and have zero experience with it. Soul Hackers is here because it is the only non-Persona SMT game I have ever touched. Interesting. Which, by the time this episode comes out, will actually no longer be true, because at time of release last Friday, I and Matt streamed some of Shin Megami Tensei III Nocturne HD Remaster. God, that's such a long title. And then also, uh, we will be going back for a second session tonight at time of release. So, yeah.
1: Interesting. See, I could have possibly given it a shot, but I was just itching to talk about this soundtrack. For persona q2 so we'll get to some smt
0: games and their weird spin-off forms this week but first joe how are you doing what are you playing what am i playing well i rolled credits on resident evil village nice this game's pretty pretty good uh the second area is by far the best area in the entire game there's no contest it just that's it that's the one uh and the other areas are fine but compared to that it's just this entire section where it takes away all of your guns and now you're in an escape room. Good luck. It's, uh, it's cool. Uh, I also rolled credits on Famicom Detective Club, The Missing Air, which I will actually be, I might have a review of it up by the time this episode comes out. I don't 100% know. It's not written yet currently. <laughs> so we will, we will see on that. And then lastly, just out of the blue, I, played a little bit of the original shantae because i've actually never done that and it recently released on switch uh, a couple months ago and that game looks really impressive for a game boy color game wow that's a neat little collection of games there uh, i have a similar
1: one so a couple episodes you brought pikuniku to the show i uh, sat down for a few hours on xbox game pass started up and Yeah, beat it in a couple sittings. Uh, that was, that was a nice time. I think the kick mechanics are a little weird and frustrating when it's like, obviously this is the solution to the puzzle. Why don't the kicks work just so? Uh, so it doesn't like hinder you. It just takes time, honestly. Uh, but yeah, really fun. I sent a picture to you. I I had to be proud that I got a 100% as king of the dance floor first try so thanks to the show knowing that song in advance going into it that helped that popped a little achievement on xbox there that was pretty neat i also rolled credits on super mario 3d world on switch which i had played before on wii u so it was good to experience that again and you know roll credits there and then i've been digging into mass effect legendary edition of course the first mass effect a lot of neat improvements to that game for sure especially the legendary experience scaling uh quick version for those that don't know to basically max out your character uh, you basically had to do like two full runs of the original mass effect well if you do this legendary experience scaling uh, you can basically do that in one run so when you're getting like six experience points to put to your character chart in one level pretty neat stuff there uh, really enjoying it so far uh Therum and pharos are done on to Noveria, and then Vermeier, and, and so on and so on. So, good time. I'm uh, playing as a Barack Obama-inspired Commander Shepard. <laughs> We're going to romance
0: Liara in this one, as you do. Yeah. I am hoping to buy a Legendary Edition eventually. There's just... I got I to gotta, like save my money for new stuff, mm-hmm. other than just re-releases, but eventually sometime this year. Because I do want to replay the trilogy, and this seems like the place to do it.
1: It really is. It's it's made it a little more of an action game than a, oh, you have your reticle over an enemy and you're firing. Let's have the math and percentages uh, chance it out like an RPG. No, it's more of like it's an action game. You're going to hit your mark. But uh, some interesting things like I think a lot of people are complaining on consoles that like the FOV is a little too close. They kind of wish they put a slider in there like they do on the PC version. But Overall, it seems like a really, really good improvement on the original Mass Effect. And then, yeah, 2 and 3, they just you know touched up a little bit. I saw a screenshot of uh, Kelly Chambers. And, like, she's not looking the same at all. And what's going on there? So, I don't know. We'll see when I get to uh, Mass Effect 2, my favorite of the three.
0: I look forward to hearing about it.
1: In the meantime, though, let's talk about some composer follow-up news. Uh, for all the composers that we've talked about on this show, we see headlines in the gaming industry and then... The composers are related to them, so let's give you some updates here. A couple stories here from the past week, from when we're recording. Uh, Notably, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, Dual Destinies, and Spirit of Justice, as well as Ghost Trick Phantom Detective, have finally returned to the iOS App Store after some time away there, after they finally received patches from Capcom to support iOS 14. We've covered Spirit of Justice and Ghost Trick Phantom Detective, On the show before, I think we had mentioned that they had iOS versions there, but they're now back. That is really good to see. I feel like something happened similarly with the Ace Attorney Trilogy HD remaster a few years ago, where it's like it fell out of support with iOS and Capcom had to go update it and whatnot. That's a weird thing
0: on that platform. When is the Switch port for all three of those games and also Apollo Justice? Need that for sure. I'm waiting, Capcom. I actually kind of forgot that Spirit of Justice came out on iOS for some reason, despite knowing that Dual Destinies absolutely did. <laughs> so, weird place for my brain to go. But I think my favorite story from the week is actually the second one on our list. So, Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, which is the next expansion for Square Enix's MMO. Uh, It is releasing on November 23rd, 2021, which was announced at a digital fan festival. And, of course, this means that the soundtrack is going to be more music by the legendary Masayoshi Soken himself. But the other piece of news that came out of that was that Soken revealed that he actually had been diagnosed with cancer last year, but was still working on the music for Endwalker. Endwalker. Uh, and he said that a uh, fan support kept him strong and gave him something to live for, but also just uh, the really emotional talk from uh, Yoshi P like about how I like, is one of his best friends that he's so glad he's like he can like come back and and do work with them in person again and it, it was just a really, really touching video to watch. like wow, a nice a nice thing. Yeah, even if FF14
1: doesn't mean much to you, I think it's just a great human moment and reminds people that uh, there's human capital put in video game work, and especially even in video game music. So, I mean, when we highlight these composers, like they're people with lives who work hard and deal with setbacks, and uh, it all means something at the end of the day, both for their lives and what they help create. Hmm. I don't know how we transition from that into talking about uh, cute little chibi Persona users running about a dungeon and you fill in maps and all that. But let's talk about our first game this week. This is Persona Q2 New Cinema Labyrinth. We have talked about Persona games plenty on this show. Probably
0: to the point where some people may be like, another Persona game? Again, this actually might be the last one we can do. I can't think of another one. I could
1: jam out an episode on Royal. I'm just saying (laughs) there's enough new songs in there. We could talk about that. Anyway, uh, let's talk about this game, though, which we've already talked about the original Persona Q. Uh, It was the spinoff that came out in 2014 on Nintendo 3DS. And we talked about that on episode 61 of original Soundchat. Where, yeah, Persona Q, Shadow of the Labyrinth. If you're interested, we also talked about Persona 5 in that episode. So, if you're a Persona fan and you missed that one, Episode 61 is the way to go to catch up. So, Persona Q2 released on November 29th, 2018 for Nintendo 3DS in Japan. The rest of the world would get the game on June 4th, 2019. It is developed by P-Studio. Published by Atlas in Japan and North America, and Deep Silver in Europe. Much like the original Persona Q, it is a first person grid and map based dungeon crawler with turn based JRPG combat. It is a spin off of the Persona series, which is already a sub series of Shin Megami Tensei, which this game, the Q games, They essentially borrow the gameplay of the Etrian Odyssey series. So in Persona Q2, you have a party of five in combat in these dungeons, where you have three characters in the front row. They take more of the enemy's hits, but they can land stronger attacks. And then you have two in the back for some more protection. When elemental weaknesses are landed on opponents or critical hits, Instead of the one more system found in the Persona games, that party member that landed the hit is boosted, meaning that their next attack on on the next turn can be done at no cost. So no cost to your, your SP, your magic points, or your HP. While Persona Q's story prominently featured the fan service of the casts of Persona 3 and Persona 4 interacting, Well, Persona 5 came out since then, so Q2 adds the cast of Persona 5 to the mix for just an overall chaotic time of boiling each character down to their most basic traits, all in a cute, chibi art style. The plot of Persona Q2, then, uh, I think Wikipedia puts it best, where they say, quote, During a trip to Mementos, Joker and the rest of the Phantom Thieves of Hearts find themselves in a film, which is connected to a theater that is locked from the inside. With Makoto and Haru kidnapped, the Phantom Thieves meet Nagi and Hikari in the theater, who are also locked in with them, as well as Do, a shadow in the projection room. As the Phantom Thieves venture through movies, they meet allies along the way. The Persona 3 portable female protagonist in Kamoshida Man Persona 4's investigation team in Junesic Land, and Persona 3's specialized extracurricular execution squad, or CIS, in IGIS. all of them who have fallen into the movie world during a routine trip to the TV world and Tartarus. Each of the films the group travel through have morals surrounding discarding individuality and personality and conforming to others' expectations. While traveling, the group changes the film's endings, giving them happy endings as Hikari and Nagi watch from the theater. Upon returning, Doe presents them with a key that unlocks each of the four locks on the door. So the big questions are, who are Hikari, Nagi, and Doe, and what are their motivations? And can everybody escape this new cinema labyrinth?
0: Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with
1: Persona Q2?
0: So, I played Persona Q and loved it. I think it is great. Unfortunately, uh, due to two factors, I have not played Q2, mainly because, A, boy, it that game should have somehow been a Switch game, releasing that game on the 3DS like a year and a half into the Switch's life, if not more. Was it two years? Mm-hmm. More than two years. Oh, jeez. Like... Uh, That kind of hamstrung it a little bit, but also the fact that like it didn't get a dub, and I think there are perfectly reasonable reasons why it didn't get a dub. That game was not going to sell in the West in a way that would have allowed them to make a dub worth it, but also just as somebody that gets really selective about voices, like I can't switch languages in something like Persona 5, where, like, that's not what Joker sounds like. No. I have the same problem with, like, Dragon Ball Z. I can never go watch Dragon Ball Z in Japanese, ever. I can't do it. So, yeah, just a couple of personal hang-ups about the platform, and then also the lack of a dub kept me away from it. I want to play it eventually, but I'm not really in any rush to do so, I guess.
1: I think you nailed it uh, pretty much, so I, like you, played Persona Q, and we talked about our thoughts about that game on the episode we covered it, episode 61. I don't want to say I loved it, but I mean, I, I had a pretty good time with it. I played on safety, uh, you know, the easiest difficulty. It, it was fine. I feel like looking at Q2 and just adding a whole new cast to all of that, all of the characters interacting, it, it seems overwhelming but you're absolutely right i mean more than two years into the north american release of the switch it's a tough time to say hey you want to go back and play a game on 3ds yeah it's it's a tall ask for sure especially you know when if you've been you know playing persona 5 and all that like is it too soon to you know play more persona and more stories with these characters but you're also absolutely right i mean the big hang up is that this is the first english persona game that does not have an english voice cast and uh that is a tough hurdle for some people i feel like i've had this game on a rental list for a while and it's kind of been in the middle of the pack and it either floats to like we don't have stock anymore of this game or like we just it, it's there but it's kind of just in the middle of your list so i, I don't know if i'll ever get to it but the music from it is uh, something that ever since i've heard it In 2019, I'm just like, I feel like I would love playing it in context of the game. But for now, like, I just I just like the music and I don't know if necessarily the game is calling to me. So it's a bit of a a mixed bag there where, like, yeah, I liked Q, but there was never a big drive to break out the 3DS again and try Q2. Like, am I really going to gain anything new in the Persona fandom? from this game?
0: I don't know. Probably not. I mean, to be fair, the all of the like really, really worth it stuff in Q1 is thrown at the end, and it's kind of just fan service before that. Which, generally, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I like me some fan service, but the really, really good stuff is like 40 hours into Persona Q, so it's a hard sell to be sure.
1: Like their original games, they are also very long games. You're right. It was interesting to read a little bit, though, about how the game was developed and some of the thought processes behind that. So, Persona Q's original director had envisioned the game as the start of a bigger spin off series. So, full development for Persona Q2 began following the completion of Persona 5 in 2016. I had to keep reminding myself that that was the year it released in Japan. I always think of Persona 5 as a 2017 game because that was when it was in the West. But nope, September 2016 in Japan. Uh, yeah, you have a new set of characters in Persona 5. What was going to be a very popular game there in Japan. Q2 felt like a pretty sure thing on that front. And based on the feedback from Persona Q, the development team refined the gameplay mechanics. They made things simpler for new players and they balanced the difficulty for its sequel because yeah that's a game especially if you have not played Etrian Odyssey or a persona game uh normal is difficult
0: <laughs> it's quite tough yeah uh it's it's kind of like persona 4 where it's like hey play persona 4 on easy your first time just not, just trust me i get it no i know play persona 4 on easy your first time <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah for sure
1: also some of the horror elements that were present in Persona Q, and boy, were they, uh, they were toned down or removed from this game. Uh, everything has a, a Hollywood theme. Everything is like film-based. And so, yeah, not not as much on the, the scary front there. So, yes, what to do with all of the game's characters? Well, the dev team brought in both new original characters for this game's specific plot, as well as the Persona 5 cast. Also due to fan demand, the female protagonist from Persona 3 Portable was also included as a character. I feel like that was one of the first things that seeing the game and its development and hype cycle from the outside, I noticed that and it's like, oh, well, look at that. Like they remember that she existed.
0: All right. I remember hearing about it because Matt, has decided it's his biggest, the monkey's paw, one finger curls in. <laughs> because people people really like the female protagonist from Portable, but Atlas just does not seem to want to admit she ever existed. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. And so when people are... Because as far as I'm aware, the Q games are not that popular in terms of the Persona spinoffs. I think they're the bottom wrong for a lot of people which eh, okay yeah but for those people to be like please give us more femsi as she is called oh you gave us more but she's in queue. oh it, it was a hilarious response in my opinion <laughs> yeah yeah for sure
1: there and joe you may remember in the original persona q you had the story branching path right at the beginning where do you want to play with the investigation team of Persona 4 or did you want to play with Cease from Persona 3 and it had totally different story paths at least you know from the very beginning based on that well no not the case here Uh, one story path and it's focused on the Persona 5 cast but they split up the interactions with the different parties over the different dungeon arcs and and that makes sense in that way so Persona Q2 was first announced in August 2017 along fellow spin-off titles Persona 5 Dancing in Starlight and Persona 3 Dancing in Moonlight. Its official reveal came in August the following year, where it was released in Japan a few months later. And yes, like we mentioned, no English dub in this one. Of course, the text is all localized in English, but it is full of Japanese voiceover, which to some people can be a little jarring. Overall, though, Persona Q2 is generally seen as the swan song for major third-party 3DS support. This is June 2019. It is more than two years after Nintendo Switch launched worldwide. It even released a few months after Kirby's Extra Epic Yarn, which was the last-released Nintendo-published game for the system in North America. And yeah, it really didn't help the game's case on multiple fronts. But it did review fairly well, with a Metacritic average of 81. The soundtrack was given the most praise, hey, might be why we're talking about it today, along with the battle and the map-making gameplay. Some people thought that there was too much padding in the back half of the game, also just the excessive amount of characters and also their Flanderization were critiques, just boiling their essence down to
0: simple character points and traits. Yeah, that was an issue in Q too. I mean, it's, it's fine.
1: It is what it is when you have so many characters that aren't going to be developed in this spinoff. Mm-hmm. While Persona Q sold 187,000 units in Japan in its first week, It only sold 80,000 in Japan in its first week. Probably about 90,000 units life-to-date in Japan, and sales data was just not available for the rest of the world, which really tells you enough. Of course, it's just a less relevant platform with the 3DS in 2019, and so who would care about a 3DS game in 2019 for awards season? Well, it's those Navigator Awards where Persona Q2 was nominated for Game Franchise Role Playing. Okay. All right.
0: It gets something.
1: <laughs> it is better something than nothing. You're right. The Persona series, though, as far as its legacy, it's as popular as ever. I doubt we're ever going to see a Q3 in the future because... We need Persona 6 to happen first. And that won't be for several more years. Uh, we'll see if there's an uprising for wanting that Q spin-off to come back, but I feel like at that point
0: maybe maybe that's tipping over just far too many characters. I'm also wondering if Atlas is like trying to- I don't know if an Etrian Odyssey game has come out on Switch yet. Mm. But I feel like that might be something, too, because Etrian Odyssey feels like a game tailor-made for the DS, what with the map drawing and everything. Mm-hmm. So maybe it, it could also have something to do with, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, experimenting. They don't know really where to go from here. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, the last Etrian Odyssey game was, I think, it was Nexus, and that came out a few months before Q2. Again, just last gasps. On the 3DS with two screens there. The composer we're going to talk about today is Hidehito Aoki. And we're talking about Hidehito Aoki because the other composers on the Q2 soundtrack we've already talked about on previous episodes before. So we'll get to talking about why uh, Hidehito Aoki is the composer of this week for Persona Q2. But first, he was born in 1970 in Chiba, Japan. He was originally hired by Atlas in 1989 as an artist, but he ended up working on music and sound effects instead. He got to visit Abbey Road Studios together with Tsukasa Masuko during the production of Shin Megami Tensei II, and then he ended up leaving Atlas in 2001 to work for Sony Computer Entertainment. Unfortunately, this is when tragedy struck, as while traveling for a business trip at the end of 2002, his car lost control on an icy mountain road and he fell to his death. Hidehito Aoki was 32 years old. So yeah, someone who worked on the original foundations of Shin Megami Tensei series, the Persona series, and gone far too soon.
0: Hmm. I think that's the second composer we've covered that we found out is not is no longer with us. Hmm. Uh, and it never it never gets easier to figure out how to keep talking after that. That's that's true. Well,
1: Hidehito Aoki's discography included games with some great titles. I must say, there's Wacky Races, which is the only game he composed for NES. There's Summer Assault. S-O-M-E-R, Assault. Amazing Tater. (laughs) Okay.
0: I want to play that.
1: (laughs) I know, it sounds great. There's also Majin Tensei and Majin Tensei 2, which were spinoffs of the Shin Megami Tensei series as well. He was the sound director for Revelations Persona, which was the start of the Persona series. He also contributed music to Devil Summoner Soul Hackers. Hey, which we'll talk about shortly with Joe's game. He also composed sound effects for Wild Arms 3. And he did engine sound recording for what ended up releasing as Gran Turismo Concept 2002 Tokyo Geneva. And that was some of the work there for Sony Computer Entertainment. So as far as historical development research goes, there's Shoji Meguro, who composed the original Persona 3, 4, and 5 music. Uh, You know, not his... Original arrangements, it kind of got a Q arrangement, but we talked about Megaro on Episode 3 for his work on Catherine. Atsushi Kitajo is the main music force behind Persona Q2, whether it was composing new tracks, arranging some of Megaro's older work. And we talked about Kitajo on Episode 79 with Persona 4 Arena Ultimax. And then Hidehito Aoki composed the track on Persona Q2 of Persona, and this is a somber piano piece. It's an arrangement of the opening theme from the original game in the series, Revelations Persona. And it shows up in a couple places here in Q2. At the very start of the game, where like an inspirational quote is shown, and then apparently also in a different arrangement in the Game Over screen. Hmm. So it's kind of trying to take back, in a way, the original opening theme from Revelations Persona. Very interesting. That's super neat. I like that a lot. Yeah, so kind of having his work live on in a way there. For Atsushi Kitajo, the main composer of the game, the keywords for the music were retro, pop, and kitsch. And I think that kind of hits the nail on the head pretty well. If you got to purchase the game early enough, players could acquire a Persona 3, 4, and 5 battle background music set for free, in case you wanted to change up some of the battle music. Many of those songs we have covered in previous episodes of the show for Persona 3, 3 Portable, Persona 4, Persona 4 Golden, Persona 5, battle tracks there. So let's get to this soundtrack that I love. Let's get to hearing some of these tracks. And let's get to the Critical 5 tracks for Persona Q2, New Cinema Labyrinth. We start with Critical Track number one, the opening theme, Road Less Taken. I feel like this was the first song I ever heard from this game and it was kind of showing like this is what the opening sequence of this game, the opening movie, before you hit the title screen. And wow, 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 what a catchy theme. It is composed by Atsushi Kitajo, with vocals by Yumi Kamomura, Shihoko Hirata, Lin, and Lotus Juice. With lyrics by that good old Benjamin Franklin. Yeah! So, I feel like we have to mention here how... One of the coolest things that this game's soundtrack does, in addition to bringing the casts of Persona 3, 4, and 5, is they bring the vocalists from those games into this soundtrack as well. Fans of Persona 5 may remember Lin Inaizumi being the jazz soul singer in the themes from that game shihoko hirata and her bright vocals are from she's from persona 4 and then yumi kawamura she's from persona 3 also on some other tracks we get mayumi fujita and she is the vocalist from tracks from persona 3 portable like uh from wiping all out the battle track there for instance so it is neat to see all of them come back and they're trading and picking up different lines here and it's It's just a great combination of not only these games, these characters, but also these vocalists that represent the audio identity from each. But yeah, you're opening up with this big band swing jazz. You're getting Lotus Juice coming in with what you gonna do, what you gonna do. And then, I mean, when the chorus hits, like, that's just persona vocals. Like, I feel like that's a series where it has this audio aesthetic With these female vocalists, and it's like, that's Persona,
0: clearly. Mm -hmm. I absolutely adore when things do this. It's one of the reasons why I like the Persona Q soundtrack so damn much. Uh, It is this really cool way of sort of thematically combining all three of these games into just this putty, I guess. It's, It's weird to think of it as a putty, but I didn't know what else to say. The only other series that I can think of that does this isn't even a game series. It's an anime, which is Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Mm. where uh, you've got parts one and two, which both have their own openings, and then you have part three. The first half has its own opening, and then for the fourth opening of the series, they brought back the three vocalists that did the previous three and had them sing a new song. And it's just it's always super cool when that happens cuz it just it sort of feels like the generations slamming together uh it, it's a really cool feeling but also you can absolutely see like a point a to point b on this song and a lot of the original stuff in q1 like the jazz stuff and everything mm-hmm. but like turned up to 11 it's great it's a great song
1: yeah and i feel like that's definitely inspired by persona 5 right you have to have a little more jazz because that's what the main theming in persona 5 was but i feel like it's also just not only a great attention to detail but the fact that atlas continues to have these relationships with these singers that persona 3 is a game from 2006 and yet yumi Kawamura is happy enough to come back and contribute her voice i that's just fantastic Let's get to number two on the Critical Five, though, and it's more of that Persona 5 feel. This is Invitation to Freedom. If you're like, yep, that could have come straight out of Persona 5, I mean, you're right. This is the Persona 5 hero battle theme. It's the first main battle theme in the game when you have the party of Persona 5 only on on your side here. And so, yeah, of course it's going to be a theme about, we're ready. Hey, fakers, we're going to take you down. That's that's what we we are. We are the Persona 5 Phantom Thieves. So this song is composed by Atsushi Kitajo. With vocals by Lynn, of course. With lyrics by Rika Schmaltz. Yes, yeah, it just has that persona five energy with the acid jazz there. I feel like some riffs and runs in there, da like that's that's pretty spot on and memorable from the original game. And of course, Lynn with her singing. Just killing it as always. Just a lot of power and soul behind the vocals. What a great theme. I mean, I'm sure, especially when you're learning the basics of Persona Q2 combat, just what a great battle track to get
0: things going with. Yeah, I think you I think you said it best. It is 100% just, you could play this for me without telling me what game it was from, and I'd be able to tell you Persona 5, uh, and I'd be wrong because this is just quintessentially Persona 5, <laughs> like an aesthetic basically hitting you over the head with it, and yeah, uh, Lynn is great. It's just amazing right?
1: So good but then you kind of get into the game a little bit you have your base of operations in the cinema and you have this theme hit you number three on the critical five this is cinematic tale Let's just put it out there. All the tracks going forward previously that we're going to cover here. These are all composed by Atsushi Kitajo. For this one, though, uh, there are vocals by Yumi Kawamura, Mayumi Fujita, Lin, and Shihoko Hirata. Yes, they got all four ladies uh, to sing on this version in particular. And lyrics are done by Jasmine Webb. So, yes, this is the theme when you're in your... Cinema base of operations, you're navigating some menus, maybe go to the shop, maybe go uh, check out some persona swapping around. I don't know. There are different versions of this song, though. There is a cinematic tale solo, a cinematic tale duo, and then this is the full version of the song. Cinematic tale solo is when you just have the Persona 5 party. So, of course, Lynn is the only singer. When you meet the Persona 4 investigation team next, well, it changes to Cinematic Tale Duo. And so Lin and Shihoko Hirata are singing as a duet on the song. But then, yes, as you add more of the vocalists uh, from the different Persona games, the vocalists are added as the cast members grow. Miami Fujita from Persona 3 Portable sings in the intro. And then when you hear the clip here, this is Lin, Hirata, And then Kawamura from 5, 4, and 3, you hear them in the clip in order. This was also a music track that was used as part of a 3DS theme for Persona Q2, and it happens to be the one that is installed on my 3DS main menu. So I open up my 3DS and I hear this song. So not only is it an important track in the game, in the context, like a main hub menu, but you also have it representing the game as a whole in other places.
0: That is, so if I'm hearing you correctly, if I, if I understood that correctly, it adds the, that's so cool. <laughs> that's so cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Aww. So, I mean, so Lynn is just, you know, singing, if it's just the solo version, like she's just given a, a whole solo performance. But then uh, Hirata and her are, like trading back and forth every few lines. And then they sing together in the chorus, which is sadly outside the clip. Uh, but yeah, this full version is like everybody. It's, it's so cool, and you can hear
0: the distinct vocal differences. It's, it's really neat. That is possibly one of the coolest music based things I've heard this year from this show. Wow. I'm into that. That's great.
1: And it's just a, a little catchy, poppy track, but it, it really gets you because these are just so talented. All these vocalists here. But my favorite track on the soundtrack comes in at number four here on the Critical Five. This is Pull the Trigger. Vocals on this track by Mayumi Fujita and Lotus Juice, with lyrics by Rika Schmaltz. This is the battle theme that is introduced after you meet that Persona 3 portable heroine, that Femme-C character. I think they represent her as June in the game, which that's a choice, I guess, or at least in the Let's Play I saw. I I, I guess, all right, that, that works. Hmm. But yeah, such a cool energy to this one. And it's almost like a blend between, you get a little bit of Persona 5 inspired jazz, but I mean, it's a little little darker here, almost like Persona 3. So it's not exactly what I would say is Persona 3 portable. It's almost like a blending of the two, but you have uh, the portable experience with the female main characters. Very different, I would say, tonally than the original three. Just as far as like it's its music and it's its feel and it's atmosphere. But yeah, just this, this build up to a fantastic chorus. And yet it kills me not to include the bridge of the song in this clip. Where you have Lotus Juice, the rapper from Persona 3, rapping and he's dropping phrases like burn my dread and baby 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 right before getting back into the chorus which are... Of course, Persona 3 deep cuts. Again, the the fan service is dripping in this game, and I feel like it's a really neat track here that represents the deep Persona 3 fandom.
0: I agree it's a good song. I don't know. I don't get the, the Persona 3 vibe from this one all that much. Not that that like, ruins the song or anything. This song is awesome. It's super good and Lotus Juice, as usual is just you know, a deity among men. I don't know though. something about it feels closer to something I'd hear in Persona Four. Interesting. Maybe. I don't know. that's the, that's the vibe I get to it. Like it doesn't feel like it has the same sort of tone as wiping all out, for example. I don't know.,
1: yeah, yeah and, and I see that. I mean, it's it's a different pace altogether, right? But she is a singular character out of time out of out of mm-hmm. place and so uh, i feel like yeah maybe there's there's a little bit of dis- distinct difference there Hmm. wrapping up the critical five here number five this is nothing is promised i wanna live my life not to just exist gonna give my right so i fight back and resist they wanna do it like they want me make another me like on only they do not do it on me you can never hold me felt as if i was drowning with the water the Pressure hit me, come a master. And I kept a shake telling myself that I'm so much stronger than before. So I spoke with the police promise, nothing is flawless, everything's a contest. So I gotta take a shot. I would not take a swap of many smacks, I got to fight back. or else just gonna be back to the This is the boss theme in the game. So as you're reaching the endpoints of these different movies, and you have to face this monstrosity like Kamoshida Man. Uh, yeah, you have this boss theme. And so, Joe, you're familiar with Laser Beam. Yeah. The boss theme from Persona Q, one of the best tracks in that game. I still think I like that theme better, but you can't deny this one as it is composed by, of course, Atsushikita Joe. But vocals and lyrics by Lotus Juice and Lotus Juice just Kills it on this one. This song is nasty. It's grungy and just so sick. You get this little jazzy rhythm, da 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 da, and it kind of like throws you off balance a little, and then it goes hard. And like this is just Lotus Juice Unchained and fantastic. I love it. I I think I like Laser Beam better, but a, a great boss theme for this game.
0: Oh yeah, of the songs I've heard on the soundtrack, this one's my favorite. But also I think I agree that I like Laser Beam just a little bit better. This one gives it a run for its money though. Like, oh man, those strings too.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're
0: so well implemented. It's so cool. This is a great song, and the world needs more Lotus Juice.
1: I mean, granted, Lotus Juice was a rapper on Laser Beam as well, and that was more like his speed rap there, but like this is just hard punching in your face. And it's a different vibe, but a good one nonetheless. Mm -hmm. some tracks on the cutting room floor I have two Uh, the first one here is remember we've got your back vocals on this one by Shihoko Hirata and lyrics by Lotus Juice. I did some more writing on this one. So this is the Persona 4 team battle theme after you've engaged with that Inaba crew. And boy, nothing says bright J-pop energy like a Persona 4 inspired track. I think Shihoko Hirata's vocals here, they're just so clean and crisp and they just give it that happy yellow color if that makes sense so like there's there's some some energy to it here as far as like we're gonna get down for a fight but at the same time like you kind of fall on your roots here with persona 4 and it's a bright happy j-pop
0: track like i mentioned that you know pull the trigger didn't really feel like it had the same vibe as some of the stuff in persona 3 portable this one does not have that problem This is like blatantly a legally distinct version of Reach Out to the Truth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You could, it's got the same exact tone. It's got very similar like melodies and stuff. And uh, it just takes, it feels like it takes that vibe of that specific song and just runs with them real, real hard. And I appreciate it.
1: It's a fun time for sure. But then the other track on the cutting room floor here, we gotta show off the final boss theme, right? This is The Tempest. This is, of course, composed by Atsushi Joe, Tough to pick 20 seconds for the clip here on the cutting room floor, especially when it is phase two of that final boss battle theme. No vocals on this one, which I know, it's it's a little different, but I think it's notable because it has a different energy than most Persona final bosses, especially with those lighter flute fills in there. So. It kind of sounds a little bit, maybe more leaning on—I don't know if it's MIDI. I don't know; it's not necessarily the the most live performances, uh, but it's got a, a jam and a vibe to it. And you know, it's it's the
0: final boss theme. What can I say? Unfortunately, my stummishness about trumpet middies is is blocking me here. At the very beginning of the clip, you can hear you can hear them. They are not anywhere near the worst I've ever heard. Dragon Quest Eleven. Uh, but I get to be a snob about one thing, and that's the one thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I get you. You're right there. So what will I never forget about Persona Q2? A game that I have not played, so I don't have the hands-on experience there. So for me, it's the jams. Whether it's Road Less Taken, whether it's Pull the Trigger, whether it's Nothing is Promised, like, these songs... Stick with me, despite not playing the game, and it's almost like there is something to be said about. Don't you want to experience it in its proper context? Well, sure, but I already think so highly of them, and pardon me,
0: also like doesn't want to damage that. <laughs> like what? What if the game is bad? I don't know. <laughs> I I get that. I think I I think I get where you're coming from on that. Uh, I will one day play this game, but. Uh, Much like you, I'm not super in a hurry to go pick it up and load up my 3DS. Despite, ironically, the game that I'm talking about next being a game where, after doing the research, I said, I should go back and try playing that again. Hmm.
1: Well, before we get to that, let's talk about the transition where we cover a fan cover, a fan remake, uh, usually it's from YouTube, sometimes OC Remix, about a song that we just talked about from that previous game. So this is my opportunity not only to talk about a soundtrack that I love without playing the game, but also to talk about the YouTuber Brandflakes, Flakes. And Brandflakes does 8-bit VRC6 covers of modern video game songs, taking that nes sound chip that gets used in games like shovel knight the messenger and applying it to some more modern video game tracks and so he did a couple songs from persona q2 he did pull the trigger and he did this one that we'll cover here it's road less taken that opening theme especially cool keep a listen out for how he implements lotus juice in an 8-bit cover Please enjoy. We'll be right back.
0: Alright, let's move on from nice, chibi creatures. I don't know. Can you call Chibius people? Or Chibius people? I don't know. Sure? Are they legally considered people? We're getting into a philosophical... Let's talk about Devil Summoner Soul Hackers. Soul Hackers was originally released for the Sega Saturn in Japan on November 13th, 1997. Have we ever talked about a Saturn game on this show? I
1: feel like we've talked about games that did come out on Saturn, but not necessarily a Saturn
0: first. Yeah. The Saturn's the one that I straight up forget happened most of the time. Like, there was nothing between the Genesis and the Dreamcast. Nothing. Oh, wait, there was a thing. It's, it's got this weird position in Sega's things, but don't worry, because two years later, it was then ported to the PlayStation, on April 8th, 1999, still only in Japan. But hey, there's a real console that actually existed. And then several years later, we're talking like over a decade, Soul Hackers was ported to the Nintendo 3DS, were released in Japan on August 30th, 2012, and unlike the previous two versions of the game, this one did leave Japan. It released on April 16th, 2013 in North America, September 20th, 2013 in Europe, and September 26th, 2013 in Australia. So, we finally got our chance to play this game in 2012. It was developed and published by Atlas, and in North America it was published by Atlas USA, but in the PAL regions it was published by NIS America. This game is part of the Shimigami Tensei subseries Devil Summoner, because every time I think I've found all the subseries of ST, I'm wrong. New ones pop up like weeds every time I look into it. It's never written as such. This is the second game in the Devil Summoner subseries, but the full title of this game is technically Shimigami Tensei colon, Devil Summoner. Colon. Soul Hackers. Yeah, sorry, you don't get to have two colons. No, it's a crime. <laughs> it's a crime. Resident Evil also did a similar crime with Code Veronica X. You can't do that. No. So Soul Hackers is a classic style SNT game that honestly actually plays kind of similarly to Etrian Odyssey and Persona Q in terms of dungeons, where it's first person dungeons and kind of grid based movement, but not really. It's more first-person shooter control-y, sort of, but without the shooting. But it makes use of the SMT franchise's signature demon negotiation feature with, you know, having to talk demons into joining your team, because you can have a team of six, uh, five technically, because there's one that can't leave your party. But uh, yeah, you have to convince them. If you've played Persona 5, uh, they they brought it back. So you might be familiar with demon negotiation. And another thing that you might be familiar with, if you've played Persona, is the demon fusion system. Which, you know, lets you take all of your demons, make them kiss, and they become a better demon. That's uh, how I assume that works. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, something that Persona fans won't be familiar with which I completely forgot about until I did this research, is the fact that different demons have different temperaments and personalities, and they actually do 100% matter. These personality types include calm, dumb, wild, sly, and kind. And it affects them in the weirdest, kind of also most interesting way, so, for instance, uh, Pixie is a kind demon. That's one of the first demons you'll probably meet in pretty much any Shimigami Tensei game. She's one of the more basic ones in almost all of them. But since she is kind, she prefers to use defensive or healing spells above anything else. Meanwhile, if you find good old angry boy Aramitama, he is a wild demon, meaning that He prefers to use physical attacks and abilities, and it's important to know this because if you ask a demon to do an action that they do not prefer to do, there's a chance that they might just refuse to do it. They might just say no. You can actually mitigate this, though, by giving them gifts or letting them choose their own actions during battle, which sort of builds this loyalty and this trust between you and the thing. It lowers the chance that they'll disobey but demons also require a resource called magnetite which is a resource that depletes with every step you take in a dungeon and this resource can only be replenished by completing battles or trading for it at certain locations in game if you run out of magnetite then your entire party starts to take damage with every step what so it's it's bizarre I had forgotten about it until I read about it. It's a really, really, really weird mechanic. I don't think I like it, but I don't ever remember it being quite that bad, I guess. On paper, it sounds like a terrible mechanic. I'll just say that. Soul Hackers takes place in the fictional Amami City, which is a harbor town in Japan that is the home of the main headquarters of tech company Algonsoft. Algon has been using Amami City as a template for what they call a city of tomorrow, by connecting every home and business in town into one central network. And among Algon's projects is the interactive virtual world of Paradigm X. The player actually takes control of a hacker who hacks his way into getting an invitation for the beta of Paradigm X. Because you see, You are playing as a hacker and a member of the group Spookies, who specialize in harmless pranks and exploits. And upon entering Paradigm X, the player meets a being known as Kinap, who teaches them how to interact with the souls of the dead in a vision quest. Basically, uh, you'll find a dead person and you'll do a vision quest, which lets you essentially play a level that is their last little bit of life before they died. And that'll usually give you some clue or something for something you're supposed to know up to that point. But using this vision quest, the player learns how to activate a gun PC or gun type PC or all the wikis call it a Gump G U M P forest Gump joke insert here. I don't have one, but pretend (laughs) I did. He is able to activate it using a password found in that vision quest. So he and his uh, old friend Hitomi, who is also a member of Spookies, they found this gun PC, which is literally just a gun with a PC attached to the end of it. <laughs> it's really stupid. I absolutely love it. And they find the password to unlock it. But when they do, it releases a demon that possesses Hitomi. And this demon's name is Nemissa. She is basically the main heroine of the game. She's the one on the cover front and center, the blue hair girl. That's Nemissa. And she has amnesia. She does not know where she comes from, but she does know that now she has this cool body and she's going to do things with this cool body that she couldn't do while trapped in the PC gun. And essentially, she becomes the player's partner character for basically the whole game. And with Nemissa's help, and through the trail left by Kinop, Spookies begins to unwrap the layers of villainy behind Algonsoft's true intentions with Paradigm X. Most notably, they seem to be looking for a way to use it as a method to steal human souls. So, can Spookies stop Algon's evil plot? Who is Nemissa, and where does she come from? And what exactly is Kinop's goal? in all this. Peter, this is where I'll ask you, what are your experiences with soul hackers? Totally
1: zero. I, I do remember the 3DS game coming out, and I'm like, oh okay, that's a, a weird Shin Megami Tensei spinoff. It was right there in the title on the 3DS version. Uh, zero knowledge of it being on PlayStation or Sega Saturn or uh, yeah, even going back and you know listening to the music, and it's like, wow, I yeah, just nothing. There's nothing here in my brain for Devil
0: Summoner Soul Hackers. I was the same when this game came out on 3DS. I bought it at launch because I had just finished Persona 4. And I was like, I wanna see what this other SD thing's all about. And of course, Soul Hackers was the brand new one coming out. Well, quote unquote brand new. I guess for <laughs> us it was brand new. Yeah, I was gonna like, say, how'd that work out for you? Like uh, but I Liked what I played. I stopped because I hit one of Atlas's signature difficulty wall bosses. And I had to go grind and I just didn't have the patience to do it. I'm pretty sure it's still the game in my 3DS right now. Uh, And again, doing the research here, you know, I kind of want to go give it another shot. Maybe just have a walkthrough open to tell me what levels I should probably be at. You know, that kind of thing. But I I liked what I played, overall. It's got some old dated stuff that Magnetite is really weird, and I'm not sure I dig it, but otherwise, I mean, it's worth a look, at the very least, if you have a 3DS and way too much time on your hands, I suppose. So let's talk about how this game came to be. Also, I will say, I don't think it's a knock that neither of us knew it was on the Saturn or the PlayStation. It didn't come out here. And also, I've never seen a Sega Saturn in person.
1: <laughs> oh, I was uh, best friends with someone who had one, but, I mean, these are memories long gone and long buried, so...
0: I don't even know what a Sega Saturn's controller looks like. <sighs> Anyways, so Devil Summoner is a different beast than the normal S&T series because... Base Shin Megami Tensei, a lot of people forget, those are post-apocalyptic games. But Devil Summoner, the first one, and then the ones after that, focus more on being modern day detective stories, essentially. The original Devil Summoner was actually released for the Saturn in 1995, and to this day, that one has actually never been brought westward. Even now. Even with the sequel coming out in the West, the original still hasn't and probably never will. So, despite that, though, Devil Summoner saw really, really great commercial success in Japan. And so, in 1996, the team began working on a second entry, which, of course, became Soul Hackers. And in terms of concept, uh, apparently the main scenario... Of Soul Hackers came into being through the influence of the sudden emergence of the internet in 1996. Uh, Specifically, they cite the release of Windows 95, an ancient, hitherto unknown (laughs) anything. Uh, And apparently, producer Koji Okada and character designer Kazuma Kaneko, who we have talked about before, or not only his work on Persona games, but also his work on uh, Devil May Cry 3, where he designed Virgil and Dante's Devil Triggers. They were a little bit worried about the potential of the internet and how it could potentially be abused to sort of, well, let's be real. It could potentially turn into what the internet is today. <laughs> they were right, it turns out. And they were, you know, they were kind of, uh, kind of spooked about that, so they decided to funnel that into a story. Uh, Kaneko handled demon and main character designs, but various sub characters happened to have been designed by Shigenori Sojima, who years later would go on to become the main character designer for the Persona series. I believe he still is? Yeah, he was in five. Yeah, so. There's a a strong connection right there. Uh, Many of the story elements were actually chosen specifically to be the opposite of the original Devil Summoner. For instance, in Soul Hackers, your character is not a veteran Demon Summoner. He's just a dude that happened to walk into it on accident. While the first game has you playing as, I believe, a direct descendant of the Kuzunoha line. Meanwhile. Uh, The first game takes place in a big high-tech city, but Amami City is instead, you know, a small harbor town, which really only saw a boom in technological advances when Algonsoft showed up. I did find out, though, that originally they were going to go even further with that because Amami City was actually supposed to be smaller than it is in the main game. I don't know what that would have looked like. I don't think I remember enough about how small Amami is but everything describes it as a small harbor town, so... The character of Kenop was inspired by... portrayals of Native Americans in Hollywood movies, which the instant I read that sentence, the first thing that came to mind was,
1: uh uh-oh,
0: whoops, Uh, uh-uh, nope, Uh, where Kaneko described that they seemed both spiritual and upright, And I guess there are worse conclusions you could come back with (laughs) when talking about how Native Americans are portrayed in media. In fact, there are apparently a lot of pieces of Native American folklore that uh, just became part of this game's influences. Including the main antagonist, whose name also comes from Native American folklore. Which I won't say his name because I don't know if it's a spoiler yet. I don't think I ever played far enough to see it. So... While the game did not come to the West until 2012, there was actually an effort to try and localize the PlayStation version way back in the day, but apparently this attempt was specifically halted by the strict content approval policies of Sony of America. Likely because, you know, all the demons and religious entities. Back in the day, those were, you know, little bit more touchy subjects in video games. So when it did finally come to the 3DS though and was being prepared to go westward, was ready for localization, the localization team decided to treat it as a brand new game instead of as a sequel. Which was, you know, the right decision considering the first one never came out here still. So, you know, probably a good call on that. Uh, but then they also found that some of the dialogue the localization was difficult, for the funniest possible way, because they wanted to make sure that when the characters talked about computer stuff, they didn't sound like idiots reading a script that was written in 1996. Oh yeah, okay. So, they needed to make sure it didn't sound like amateur technobabble, which also presented a problem in itself, because the game was using this fantastic vision of what the future of technology would look like, and uh, that's not accurate at all. Uh, they compared the experience to, quote, viewing an old film reel about potential future technical developments. <laughs> so it was essentially the equivalent of when you watch something from the 50s and they're like, by the year 2002, we'll have flying cars and personal jetpacks. And I'm still waiting on my personal jetpack. But another thing that they hit up against was they had to make it a clear line between when Hitomi was talking and when Namisa is talking. Because Hitomi still has the ability to sort of like, this is still my body, I can still talk sometimes. So they did the easiest fix. Both characters have separate actresses which I guess was not the case in the original game, because they felt the need to point this out. Uh, And also, Nemissa has a habit of referring to herself in the third person, so they kept that from the original Japanese script because it honestly gives her a little bit more character. And I I think it's weirdly endearing. I don't know. I couldn't actually find a lot of info on how the Saturn or PlayStation versions sold, Or how they were received. I mean, obviously received well because you know that's why the game got moved to the PlayStation in the first place. But how well and what things critics had to say back in the day—it doesn't seem to be a lot of information on that. The 3DS version, though, is currently sitting at a Metacritic of 74. Soul Hackers was the 27th best-selling game on the Sega Saturn as of 2007. Which I guess we were still counting Saturn games in 2007, and then the PlayStation version was among the top 150 games of 1999 in terms of sales. Uh, while the 3DS port didn't exactly do gangbuster numbers, I think like it didn't even hit like a hundred thousand copies <laughs> sold in the in the West at least. They didn't really expect it to do much more than that because I mean, it's a port of an almost 20-year-old game and a niche franchise that, you know, they didn't expect it to sell 3 million copies, that just wasn't going to happen. And it's refreshing to hear a publisher say that, because usually all you hear is, yeah, we put out this game that's super niche and it didn't sell 7,000 copies, so my studio's been closed. <sighs> Always nice when the publisher actually has an idea of how well their game realistically will sell, but the 3DS version did sell enough to beat the PSP port of Persona 2: Eternal Punishment, which happened to also release in 2012. Apparently, at time of recording, less than a week ago, and I'm so happy I stumbled in on this. Atlas's parent company, Sega Sammy. Released a financial results report that named multiple dormant IPs that were not currently in use. I think uh, as a way to be like, we should be using these IPs, we're leaving money on the table. And this list included things like Jet Set Radio, uh, Virtual Fighter, House of the Dead, oh, and Soul Hackers specifically by name. Hmm. Just randomly there. I only did this game because it's the only other SNT game I've played. And. They happened to, it's on that slide by name. Beautiful. So, last week, uh, during our Who We Talk About Next Time segment, I said I was going to be talking about Ryota Kozuka, because he is the one that did the arrangement for the 3DS version of the game. Uh, This was a foolish choice on my part, because I just sort of assumed that Soul Hackers was only done by... Shoji Megaro, which he was involved, but there were also two other composers. So it didn't feel right to throw Kozuka in when there were two slightly more relevant composers to bring up. We'll talk about Kozuka at some point, I'm sure. We both like plenty of Atlas games. I'm sure he'll show up <laughs> yep. eventually. But the composer we're going to cover is Toshiko Tasaki. Unfortunately, this is another one of those th- moments where. There's just not a lot of information about her. Uh, She was born on January 31st, 1969, in Joso Ibaraki, Japan. Seems to have joined Atlas in 1996. And that's all the information I have for you. Uh, In terms of discography, she worked on a bunch of games. Some things that sort of jumped out at me. Uh, One was Astyanax. A-S-T-Y-A-N-A-X. I've never... Heard of this game, and yet the name sounds familiar. So I feel like it's been brought up on this show before, but I could not tell you where. She uh, joined the SMT franchise pretty early. She is credited as a composer and a performer on Shimagami Tensei Devil Summoner and Soul Hackers, obviously, as well as Persona 2 Innocent Sin and Eternal Punishment, and she is credited as a composer on Shimagami Tensei 3 Nocturne. So there's another cool connection to recent events. She's also credited as a lyricist on Shin Megami Tensei Digital Devil Saga, but she seems to have left Atlas uh, recently, pretty much. The only other games on the list that stood out to me were she's the composer on Akiba's Trip, Undead and Undressed. I've never played an Akiba's Trip game, and I hope to God I never do. And Akiba's Beat, which I assume is also an Akiba's Trip game, but... Also, I found it super interesting, she was one of the sound designers on Octopath Traveler. Hmm. So that's pretty neat. So she's at least still in the industry. That's, that's good to know, at least. So, as I mentioned, there were actually three composers on this game. The lead composer and the one who did a majority of the compositions was Shoji Meguro, who, again, like you said, we covered in Episode 3 for his work on Catherine, and then have talked about him for every... Persona game since. But it was also done, obviously, by Toshiko Tasaki and Tsukasa Masako, and as I mentioned, the 3DS port features arranged music by Ryota Kozuka, though, as far as I remember, it's not super different <laughs> between the 3DS and the original soundtrack, which we're pulling from here. So Megaro's goal for the soundtrack was apparently to emphasize the Cyberpunk-style setting as well as the haunting atmosphere created by the demon's presence. Uh, And this led to him creating what he refers to as a hybrid of jazz and techno, which is a really, really interesting pairing that I kind of super dig. Uh, Apparently, there were about 50 pieces written by Megaro for this game, as Megaro and company had far less creative freedom than they usually did. And this, combined with the memory issues that came with developing for the Sega Saturn, sort of compacted together into a project that he felt had sort of been cheapened. But also, from what I can tell, this is among his least favorite projects, uh, because he refers to the whole process of working on this game as exhausting. And there was an arranged album released for this game, uh, much like the reincarnation for Persona 4 and all that. And I actually, full disclosure, use that sort of as a template for what tracks do Atlas think are important enough to get these remakes. But for the most part, these these kind of feel like they're a lot of safe choices, I guess. So let's go ahead and jump into Five Critical Tracks. And we'll start with Critical Track number one, Opening Movie. (laughs) I must admit that I am not actually the biggest fan of this song. (laughs) First of all, if you haven't guessed by the brilliantly creative title, this plays on the opening movie of Soul Hackers. And I saw a lot of YouTube comments that were like, oh, the song's amazing. It's one of the best intros the series has ever had. And I disagree. I don't think it's terrible, but uh, this song's really shrill. At certain points, man, they, they boosted the high end a lot. (laughs) That being said, though, it is, it is uh, composed by Toshiko Tasaki. So, you know, very good first track if we're talking about her for the most part. And also, even though it's not Megaro, you can really kind of hear the jazz techno hybrid vibe that they were, they were going for, for sure. It's really shrill but it's unique and also the vocal samples are stupid but also that's why I love them.
1: Yeah, the panning at the beginning with the soul hackers and then I wish I knew what uh, the other vocal samples were saying <laughs> instead of it sounding almost like uh, a frog we're like rubber rubber rubber. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe it is a frog. We don't know. A techno frog. <laughs> Oh, man. Why isn't there a game called Techno... There's probably a game called Techno Frog. What am I talking about? (laughs) No, that's Crazy Frog. (laughs) He does techno stuff, though. Crazy Frog Soul Hacker's Remix. Let's do it. Anyways, yeah, I don't know. The song is fine, but... I don't know. The mixing, the EQ in this song, it just... It makes it unpleasant for me to listen to. I don't know what it is about it. So let's jump into a song I do actually like, with Common Battle. Again, this is back in the time before uh, video game soundtracks got titles that were more than just the song that plays when this thing happens. But if you didn't guess, uh, this is the song for your regular random encounter battles. It was composed by Shoji Meguro. And honestly, I kind of like this song. This song has a really good groove to it. Uh, And I think that electric organ part just really, really brings it home and really gives that feeling of the jazz techno vibe that Megara wanted. It's a cool driving song. Uh, It's not as good as Persona Battle songs, obviously, because those got to put lyrics in and all that, and that like really brings those up a notch. But yeah, it's got a good pace. It's got a really nice percussion part, and the guitar midi is... Sure, from the Sega Saturn, <laughs> but it's it's still not terrible, honestly.
1: You could tell it's it's Meguro screaming like, I want to be able to live record these guitars yeah. Yeah. and make it sound better, but he's working with the limitations of the time. Yeah, I think it's my favorite of, of the tracks that you've presented here. Um, it just has that good pace to it. And yeah, for for a piece that you're going to hear a lot with regular battles,
0: I mean, it, it better be a good one, right? Mm-hmm. I think this entire project is kind of defined by Megaro going, I hate these limitations, this is the worst, please let us go to the PlayStation 2 already. I assume that's exactly what he said. Nobody understood what he was talking about because the PlayStation 2 didn't exist yet. Anyways, let's get to Critical Track number three, it's Possession by Nemissa. This is another uh, composed by Toshiko Tasaki song. Uh, This is the song that plays when it's the introduction of Namisa, who is, by the way, the best character in the game. She's so good. She's a dumb teenager, essentially. But like in that way, you're like, oh, you're the worst. I love you. Be (laughs) bad to everybody around me, please. I always have loved that kind of character. I, The Somnium Files has a really good one. But yeah, I I really, really dig this song because like that percussion part in the back, the jazz drums, oh, they're really, they're really good. They're what stands out to me the most. That being said, this song sounds like it's from Silent Hill 3. Hmm, a little bit. I think Meguro might have been pulling from the same sort of drum loop sections as Yamaoka would like ten years later. But uh that being said, song, it's it's a very mysterious vibe to it because why is Hitomi's hair blue all of a sudden and she's calling herself Namisa? What? It just has a little bit of sinisterness to it because somebody just stole your friend's body! It has this really, really good tone and I think this song's really fun. And
1: it's the electric piano that totally nails that, right? Like oh, the yeah. the instrumentation choice there is just yeah, adds to that mystery uh, and that that feeling that it, it sounds like cool, she's like well, a high tech high tech girl, right? But
0: I can't trust you totally yet. Yeah. It definitely does pull off the untrustworthy vibe really well. So let's get into critical track number four. It is Event Battle 2. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do if they find a way to make these titles more exciting, to say. (laughs) Uh, This is the one song on the list that is composed by Tsukasa Masako. And I believe this is one of the regular boss fight themes. Uh, Because of the nature of the fact that it is a 3DS game only in English, it's really kind of hard to look up where some of this stuff plays. (laughs) But all of the YouTube comments uh, talk about a dolphin. And I think I remember what dolphin they're talking about. And they're not talking about this dolphin in a nice manner. So I assume this is one of the main boss fight themes. Uh, And I really, really like this. I think this one's my favorite, personally. Mm. Uh, Common Battle comes very close in there, but I, I like this one a lot. It's just got this really nice, heavy rock vibe, but it keeps that electronic feel. Because you can't really do pure rock on a Sega console. Though, to be fair, at the time, if you wanted a rock soundtrack, Sega was where you went in a game. At that point, at least. Uh, and, I don't know, I think it, it still manages to hold on to that electronic feel, though, because it's still a game about technology. And I, I really appreciate this song. It does
1: pick up a good pace in the second half of the clip there. that's That's good, but... I feel like it's another example of, like, oh, you wanted to do so much more if the <laughs> instruments were only better. Like, yeah. you feel it struggling and fighting against it. Like, the great ideas here, but it the execution is just, yeah, it's... I understand Maguro's frustration with it being underwhelming.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think he used the word cheapened, like I said, and that... You hear the soundtrack and you're like, this could have been so much better, like, four years later. Just wait yeah. like four or five years and this could have been such a better soundtrack. But he still did some pretty good stuff with, with what he had, at the very least. Our last critical track is Naomi Battle. I don't think I played far enough to get to this song. Uh, It is composed by Shoji Megaro, and it plays during battles during the Vision Quests for the character Naomi, as one might guess. Again, it's really hard to make sure because it's surprisingly hard to find playthroughs of a very niche 3DS game on YouTube sometimes. This one was one of the ones that was on the arranged soundtrack list, so I figured, oh, that must, that must mean it's popular, or like Megaro himself sort of liked it. So I, I grabbed it, and honestly, it's pretty cool. I, I really, really dig this song. I don't think it is quite as good as the other two battle themes on the Critical Five, but I think it is, at the very least, very fun.
1: It is reassuring to know that like when you can hear a song, and then it's like, oh... I can tell that's composed by Shoji Meguro, mm-hmm. even
0: if the instruments are holding it back. It's, it's a good sign. So, for trying on the Cutting Room Floor, I have two, somehow. Uh, the first one is Spookies. Obviously, the the main theme of the hacker group, the Spookies, composed by Shoji Megaro. I don't know. This song, I don't know how else to describe it other than it feels cool. I think this is the one that's most clearly like, oh, yeah, techno jazz. All right, cool. We're there. Because this one just has such a good groove to it. For
1: sure. I mean, Spookies, great name, first of all. How did we not mention that? (laughs) Just a great team
0: name. I could also picture this being in an Ace Attorney game, though. Kind of, yeah. I could picture that. It it gives me vibes of what would eventually become the soundtrack to Valhalla. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, which which makes sense, because when we talked about Michael Kelly way back in the day, we talked about how S&T music is like a big influence on him in general, so that, that makes sense completely. Wow, 100%. And my second track on the cutting room floor is... Leon Automotive, electricity on! Once again composed by Shoji Megaro, I don't know if I ever made it far enough see this area in game but when i was listening to the soundtrack this is the one area of music that kind of stood out to me i don't know it's a it's a really nice piece i guess it's got a good energy to it it definitely feels dungeon-y it kind of reminds me of something i might have heard like in persona 4 almost for in terms of like dungeon themes i don't know that's the vibe i get there
1: Kinda, yeah, but uh, just, you know, less mechanical noise. It's, yeah. it's, it's a difference, you know, when you have
0: that electricity on factor in it, but it's, it's a neat dungeon theme, I get that. So what will I never forget about Shimagami Tensei, colon, Devil Summoner, colon, Soul Hackers. First of all, I'll never forget that that's a bad title. <laughs> Except Soul Hackers is a really good title, though. <laughs> I really want to go back to this game. Researching for this episode made me like, "Ah, I want to go back to it. But it's one of those moments where it's like, if I go back to it, I have to start from the beginning. I can't just pick up this RPG I haven't played in a year and a half and expect to know what's going on. So I'll probably just start over. But I don't know. I think it's very aesthetically cool. And the characters are all a lot of fun. Uh, Hitomi and Namisa have a very fun dynamic of, Mom says we have to share this bedroom, but that doesn't mean I have to do it quietly. And, yeah, that's, that's really all I got. There's not a lot that I will never forget about Soul Hackers.
1: You're right, it's an A-plus name, and it's gonna be interesting if Sega does want to revisit it, because I don't know if I want to get back to, uh, like an old game in,
0: in that sense, but... I would buy a sequel. 100%, I would buy a Soul Hackers 2.
1: Oh, yeah, if they do a new updated version kind of using today's Shin Megami Tensei kind of inspired mechanics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd that be really cool. But as far as SMT spinoffs do go, we got the modern with uh, put on the forgotten system with Persona Q2. And then, yeah, not sure I would have ever guessed a Sega Saturn first in Japan game with Devil Summoner, Soul Hackers. A uh, good episode this week on the release week of SMT3 Nocturne HD Remaster. Atlas,
0: you're you're not allowed to name video games anymore.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Heaven forbid if they do an HD remaster of Persona 3
0: <laughs> FES Portable
1: HD Remaster. Oh, God. No. Oh, jeez. Well, in the meantime, that'll do it for us this week on Original Soundchat. You can find me on Twitter at PeteSpeakeasy. Joe is over at StringPixel. It's a new Twitter account for him, so go follow him there. The YouTube version of the podcast is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, but it's that MP3 podcast version that you want, hosted by Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. That's where Joe's other podcast, masterpieces is hosted. And you can follow Masterpieces and Original Soundchat Just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, even on Spotify. Spotify, we have the MP3 podcast feed, but also a big old playlist where if we talk about a video game song on this show and it's on Spotify, it's getting added to that big monster Spotify playlist. Joe, anything added this week?
0: Well, Q2 obviously hit Spotify last year, but they still have not. Move to putting, like, any other SMT franchise soundtracks on Spotify, and it's bizarre to me, but, so no, that one's not there, but Q2 is, so a lot of those tracks actually are already on the playlist, because Q2 was one of the games represented in the top 10 in 2019, so, but the, the Cutting Room 4 tracks will definitely make their way on there, no problem.
1: Yeah, I feel like that was a big accomplishment when the Persona games finally moved on to there, but yeah, I guess uh, no other SMT games. Interesting. When you're done listening there, you can find us on social media at soundchatost for the show. You can leave feedback for us, how we're doing with these episodes, as well as suggestions for games that you'd like us to cover in the future. That's one of our big goals for 2021. We're going to get our merch site up hopefully soon. Trying to figure out some last minute details on that. And then also some... Bonus tracks in the future for you. Got some best ofs hopefully coming your way. Joe, who are we talking about next week? I will be talking about Barry Topping. I will be talking about Satoshi Iwase. Oh boy, two games that are very, very similar. If anything, it'll be hard to find the differences between the two. Let's
0: put it that way. In the meantime, Joe, let's play us out. So, I had never heard about this band before. Uh, there's a Japanese video game cover band called Helion Sounds, and they apparently have an album called Last Floor, which is just a bunch of arrangements of music from various SMT games, including Persona 4, by the way, like a couple mm. of songs on that album. But they did a cover of Common Battle from Soul Hackers, and it's really, really good. So please enjoy that. It sounds fantastic, absolutely. Thank you so much
1: for listening this week on Original SoundChat. Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.